It's Jane Alexander from the leadership stream of Women Count, a Women in Big Data podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Charmaine McGowan, and our guest, Sherelle Murphy, the Chief Economist with Austrade, the Australian Trade and Investment Commission. Sherelle holds a commerce degree with honours and a Master of Population Studies. She is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and sits on two advisory boards with major institutions. Before joining Austrade, Cheryl worked in banking and led economic research teams, as well as spending time leading the media relation teams. Prior to banking, Cheryl also worked as a journalist for a leading financial newspaper for five years, spending time as the economics correspondent in the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery. Cheryl joined Austrade just as COVID hit. Her experience and discussion today provides us with a masterclass in the skills, empathy and EQ that is needed to build successful teams and manage a broad range of stakeholders in a complex environment with ongoing and chaotic uncertainty and reaching uncharted grounds. And before we start, and in the interests of transparency, We thought it important to tell you that Charmaine has had the privilege of working for Sherelle in the past, and we'll discuss this during the podcast. Hi, Sherelle, and welcome. Thank you. Fantastic to be here. Well, it's great to be here, and it's especially great to be here face-to-face. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. We're a little tired of the Zooms, aren't we? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And it's just lovely to be in your home, so thank you very much for having us here. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Sherelle, for joining us. I'm super excited to hear all about your career and data journey. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's great fun. Great fun to have you here. Great. So, Sherelle, we'll get straight into it. So, you have such a broad range of things that you've done in your career, but can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now in your current role? Certainly. So, currently, I'm the Chief Economist at Austrade, which means I manage a couple of teams. One is the Economics and Analysis team. And one is the machine learning and evaluation team. So across those two groups, what we do is we we look at the outside world, we look at the conditions in which Australian exporters are working and which and the global environment more generally, and we make sure that for the sake of policy and for the sake of our stakeholders, which include, of course, the minister and our executives, that we're keeping them up to date on what's happening across the global economy and the domestic situation for exporters. We also have a very different arm in the sense that we also evaluate policy. So we use machine learning techniques and we use those to look at exporters generally and learn lessons from the behavior of exporters. And we overlay that with our own client interactions to tell us and give us some predictions about where they're likely to be successful in in exporting. And we also use similar techniques in trying to understand the best firms that are likely to have success investing in Australia. So it's quite broad, the various tasks that we undertake in the team. Okay, so it's highly complex, highly technical, and you need a deep subject matter expertise to do that role. So as your background as an economist, I mean, you've extended what you do in terms of what you do around the data sphere as well. So I'd like to understand how you came into that type of position and what decisions have you made to be where you are now? Sure. So we always, in the world of economics, obviously rely very heavily on data to come to conclusions and to make judgments, to provide analysis. 
So I guess the world of, of data is always a, a part of what we do in, in any economics role, really. This one, you're right in the sense that it is quite technical and it is quite heavily based on extensive data sources and also intricate techniques. Now, this is where I really rely on my team. You know, we have some experts in the team using skills, programming, coding that I couldn't do by myself. And so as a team, you know, we really come together to, as I say, kind of get to those conclusions, to make the judgments, to make the evaluations or provide the analysis based on really broad selection and, I guess, suite of skills. So my part in that role is leading it, obviously. But, you know, as I say, I really depend a lot on the team and their specific technical capabilities. And uh, and some of them, as I say, have techniques that, you know, I wasn't taught at university and they're much younger and smarter than me. So together, you know, we get to that conclusion. It is certainly not a, a one person act. Okay. So the other thing that struck me as well is that whilst it's very technical and you need to have deep subject matter expertise in what you do. You also need the leadership skills to get results as a group. So I'm just mm. wondering how you've developed those leadership skills and what skills do you think are most important when you're leading that technical team? That type of group, yes. So I think, again, it comes back to the fact that you have to recognise that everyone brings a different set of skills and everyone brings something different. And that's not just about their technical capabilities. It's also about their kind of analytical brains and how they consider a problem. So, you know, we certainly have several people who use Python or use R who have very sophisticated coding skills, but that's only half of the equation. You know, it's how they attack a problem that really matters, how they think about a problem from beginning to end, how they interact with their colleagues and sort of take and receive feedback so my role in some ways is just making sure everyone's talking to each other, making sure that everyone is generally in the right direction, making sure that the team is aligned with the executive's requirements of us, making sure, of course, that more generally that the team is working towards the aims of the government in the Austrade, so trade, investment and tourism sphere, and kind of just pulling all that together, you know, putting all the jigsaw pieces together to sort of create the overall picture. So yes, the technical skills are important, but I think the way that people think about problems and the way that they interact with others and take and receive feedback is really important there. And I guess my role is to facilitate that and make sure it happens effectively for the, for the end goal. Can I just ask a question about that? You're talking about feedback. A lot of the times, that's one of the challenges is people struggle with receiving and even giving feedback. What are the leadership skills that you demonstrate to lead with that? That's a good question, Charmaine. I think what we have to do is create an environment, and this really is my job, is create an environment where people feel comfortable raising ideas or giving feedback and not feeling like they're going to be attacked or shamed or interrogated to the point of complete discomfort so that they would never do it again. So in the past, whenever I've seen that type of behavior, that sort of perhaps unwanted criticism or unnecessary criticism, I've really called people on it and said, look, I understand why you have that point of view or why you think that that may be the wrong path to go down. But the way that you communicate that back to the person who made the suggestion is really important. Please do not make them feel uncomfortable because that's when good ideas get stifled. So again, I think my role is to make sure that there is good interaction in the team to be a listener, you know, importantly, 
to make sure people do feel that they can raise what they may think is a silly suggestion but which actually may turn out to be the answer that we're looking for so I really will call people on you know so-called kind of bad behavior in that situation and make people feel like our team is a safe space we're all on the same side we are a team it's not about any one individual and we are trying to get to an end goal together and then there's the kind of more informal ways of just making people feel comfortable you know making sure that there is that personal interaction that we do take time to celebrate things that we have done successfully together you know that we do have a moment to sort of mourn the, the things that we didn't do so well together as well and, and learn from it and move on together because as I say, no part of the results of the work that comes out of the team is, is due to me or due to any single individual. It's It really is a team effort and we have to make people feel comfortable, appreciated and that they really have something to bring. Because of course everyone does. You know, that's why we hired them. <laughs> and that's why you work as a team. Indeed. So it sounds like it's very much an inclusive environment. But the other thing is it sounds that it doesn't create itself. You have to really work at developing an mm. inclusive environment. Indeed, and I, I think that, that this has been particularly tricky during COVID because I sort of came into this role beginning of 2021 when a lot of the team were still working at home. Many of the team I hadn't met in person and didn't subsequently meet them actually for some months. They hadn't met me either. They were working blind a little bit from that point of view. So I think that required a little bit more work than usual to integrate and, you know, talk to people. I mean, I have a one little thing I do formally every week, which is a Monday morning. This is what I'm doing. This is what I have done. This is the news that I've heard from the executive, which I'm passing on to you, a little email that kind of covers all of that. I try and also make sure that the economists in our team are engaging with other economists in the public service. And so I take an example of what we call lessons I learned from my colleagues from other departments. So I ask one economist per week to do a little contribution from that email just to familiarize each other with the work and the thoughts and the data sources that others are using. But yeah, it's, I think it's often the, the informal communications, the making sure that if someone has, you know, a significant personal moment, we don't let that go. You know, if someone's gotten engaged, which happened to me twice within the first three weeks of starting in this job, actually, <laughs> we celebrate that. And, you know, when and we've had a couple of people who've finished very significant degrees, actually, in recent weeks, too. And I've made a really big deal about that because I appreciate the work that they've put in and the fact that they've kind of gotten on with this while, while working full time, working really hard. From my perspective... I certainly value that. Working under you, Sherelle, I've found what sets you apart from other leaders is that you have this highly engaged emotional intelligence and you just don't see that every day. And when you do come across it, it really makes you want to model that behavior because of how it makes you feel and also being a valued member of your team. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you, Charmaine. And look, it's easier for me to sum up that information than for members of the team to go and sift it out so because someone will sit down and kind of you know point out all the, the good stuff and the juicy stuff to me so I, f- I figure it's my job to pass that on as quickly and as easily as I can and as I say you know we we have some amazing accomplishments and some significant personal moments have happened haven't they in the, in the team this year 
And as I say, I just think it's really important to recognise that. Just listening to all the bits and pieces that you do, it makes me realise how important that leadership role is in terms of pulling the group together and getting the results. And I know you've said you don't achieve the results yourself, it's through the team, and it's very much a team effort, but but without you pulling them together and enabling them to work as a team, it wouldn't happen either to bring them together. That's true. And look, you know, there, there is obviously a role for the chief economist to do that. But, I, you know, also I've had my moments during the year where I've learned some lessons. You know, we have a great census in the public service and there's been some really sort of strong feedback that's come back to me as well through this sort of vision setting and making sure that that's up to standard to make sure that people are on the same path. So I've kind of had feedback, which is, you know what, I should, that's something I can really work on. Mm. You know, that's something I could do better because I think a lot of the, the pulling together and the personal recognition comes easily to me, but maybe things that don't come so easily to me are saying, okay, this is the big Austrade vision. Let's constantly go back and check in with that and make sure that what we're doing aligns and so throughout the year, I've had points where I've kind of pulled myself up and said, let's just check that this path that we're on is the right one, you know, and come back to that. So it certainly hasn't been perfect. I don't want to give that impression. <laughs> so you've done so much in your career. You've worked in journalism, you've worked in research in banking, and now holding a, a very senior position in government. How have you developed your career what would have been the key things that you've needed to keep moving forward and progressing well I think you've got to just love the content don't you you know that's what it comes back to time and time again for me you just have to think that what you're doing is worthwhile and just interesting you know if it's not grabbing you and making you want to investigate a little bit further or push a little bit harder or draw it a little bit more then it's probably pretty hard to motivate yourself to sit at a desk doing it for 40 50 sometimes 60 70 hours a week so I think just it's that inherent interest that I have for the world around me that keeps me motivated and keeps me interested I think as economists and those who deal heavily in data we're spoiled by the fact that things are changing all the time you know there is no constant in what we do it is especially of course during the last two years when we've seen you know variety that we never really wanted to see but we've certainly had to re-establish our highs and our lows and what we thought was possible in the world the sort of changes in economic activity that we just could never have imagined so the fact that we're dealing with a real organic thing which is the global economy <laughs> frankly I just think that's fascinating and never stops giving there's always something surprising always something to learn always something that will confuse you and bewilder you and which will therefore require investigation so it's mm-hmm. the pure it's the content it really mm-hmm. is so in loving what you do which yes. is a really interesting point to think about it's so important to focus on what you love to do that's right, that's right. And, and I just think it's a natural that having the biggest sort of topic in the world, which is the global economy, as your subject matter means that you can never get bored. But, you know, that would apply to many, many professions. And I think really that's probably what keeps most people motivated who are kind of moving through and moving into new fields and I guess practicing the profession, but in different ways. There's always 
a new angle, I guess, to come out of. Okay, and you joined the public service relatively recently mm. and probably at the most complex time in our history. Probably, yes. <laughs> and you're in a position where you are advising, you are making policy decisions and having to make sense of information that we don't really have a precedence for. So can you talk a little bit about that? How did you cope with what's potentially a chaotic environment and how did you work with a new team and how did you get through that? Mm. Look, again, relying a lot on the expertise that was already there. The newness certainly hit us all in the same way, in the sense that we saw, for example, in the tourism space, we saw international tourist arrivals fall by 97%. You couldn't have made that up. You know, you, you would never have dreamt that kind of number. Clearly, you just have to kind of completely change the ballgame when you're in, in that sort of space. You know, when you see service exports falling so dramatically and foreign direct investment declining by 40%, it requires agility and a completely different way of analysing problems and policy challenges. We, again, together as a team, our job is often to put the facts in place quickly and efficiently and succinctly for those around us who are feeding information up to the minister and to the executive on policy but in that process we need to think very much about the parameters that we're dealing with because when you see changes like a 97% fall in international tourism expenditure that requires a whole new set of policy tools obviously compared to what we had in the past so it does require agility. It does require you to step away from the norms that you had been used to through the previous 10 years. You know, when you were thinking about forecasting changes in GDP, for example, of half a percentage point, they suddenly became five percentage points, which was just unheard of, you know, a few years ago. So yeah, you got to kind of loosen the shackles a bit and think a little bit differently in these circumstances. There's no doubt about it. And trying to sort of pull it back to what you're used to and, and, fit it within that box and that sort of empirical evidence is just clearly not going to work. So when we're analysing problems now, we're analysing big problems and when we therefore need solutions, we need big solutions. And we've seen the government respond in that way. When you look at the, the amount of money that was thrown behind the JobKeeper policy, it's just of the vicinity that we never saw before. And that was absolutely crucial to its success. So... It's changing the boundaries, changing the parameters and thinking big. Do you think much of it was experimenting at the same time and hoping that the guesses that are being made are the right ones? I mean, they're educated yeah. guesses, obviously. Yeah. but Yeah, I mean, no mm. one has the answer, right? As you mm. say, when, when, we've, when we're dealing with situations where there is no precedent, there is a lot of times, or there are many times where you're trying to put numbers on problems which you've just never dealt with before. So, you know, when we were looking at the tourism sector, for example, and the end of JobKeeper and trying to work out the transition needed for that sector, which was, of course, probably the worst hit of any sector in the economy, how much kind of compensation would that sector need to stay on its feet? And trying to work out that number was the tricky part. That was a sort of right at the beginning of my term. That was what we were highly engaged in. Which of course meant understanding the sector very, very well, understanding the losses that had occurred in the sector, listening, of course, to the sector itself to see, you know, how it would define the size of the problem. And then 
of course, working within the boundaries of the government's own spending limits because, of course, it's not endless. So you had to sort of pull all that together. And as I say, look, I'm one person in a very large team trying to come up with the right answer here as to how much support you give, how you give that support, which way you cut it, who gets it, who doesn't, who needs help beyond the norm. It's tricky, <laughs> you know, it's I'm tricky. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you entered the public service... Did you ever imagine that you'd be having to deal with such big issues and such complex issues? Only because we were already kind of well deep into the COVID crisis. Yes, I did. (laughs) But had you asked me that 12 months prior? No, definitely not. I think at the end of 2019, we were all feeling pretty happy about the way the tourism sector was evolving. It was going really well. Spending was up. I think you know, our biggest problem was making sure that we we could sort of facilitate all the demand that was coming into the sector. By the end of 2020, of course, the problems, the set of problems were completely and utterly different. Or the exact opposite. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) In a lot of ways. That's Mm. right. Although one very interesting thing, of course, which has happened in the tourism sector is that they had this kind of extreme fall in demand, kind of tightened the belts and pulled everything in and sort of went into survival mode. And then when economies started to open up again, found that they were actually struggling to then step back up quickly. Yeah, then we went into Delta and it kind of went down again. But now we're in that process of coming out of that downturn in demand again. And so the labour supply issues have become quite prominent very, very quickly. So we went from sort of having a demand problem to now having a sort of a supply side problem in the space of 12 months, twice. This is extraordinary. <laughs> you know, you couldn't have made this up. So the sort of policy challenge, therefore, is, is enormous. Okay. So can you summarise what you think the major difference is between public service and private enterprise, just based on your experience? Ooh, I think there's a lot of differences just because the motivation, the end game is different. You know, obviously in the, the private sector, it's generally a profit maximization goal. And again, you're only one small part of a very large team to get to that end goal. Being a sort of an advisor slash researcher slash economist in the private sector, I was always largely in the, what we'd call the cost center. You know, we were actually the ones providing the backup and helping out the teams who were ultimately bringing in the dollars, but very much part of the the money-making genre, if you like. The public sector obviously has a very different endgame, which is basically coming up with the best public policy and ensuring that we are there for the Australian people where they need us in that policy sphere as well as the execution, actually. I mean, we cannot underestimate the need of the many, many public servants who actually execute government policy and must do it very well for the system to work. And I would say that at Austrade, we contribute into both. And therefore, we're motivated by different things. What is similar, though, is that we need to have a clear independent, unbiased, data-based group of findings and analysis that will help our decision makers. You know, and that's what, as an economist in the public sector and an economist in the private sector, is absolutely the same. Have you seen that start to shift over the years, being in that kind of, like you say, that genre? Have you noticed that we are becoming less biased with our data? I think because we have 
better data, it's easier to be more clinically analytical in a way, you know, because we have more tools to get to that endpoint. So not that I've ever seen anyone put any spin on any data in the public sector, but you just couldn't, you know, even if you tried, <laughs> you know, you really couldn't because there's a very clear set of indicators that we need to lean on. And that set of indicators is becoming broader and broader as we find more and more sources of data with more and more bodies collecting data and not always actually for our end goal we're often using data that's collected for other purposes but actually applying it to the sort of analytical window that we need to look through so yeah in some ways are we're becoming just more scientific i think more clinical more clean in in what we're doing simply because we have more tools okay so a large part of your job is communicating information to your ecosystem mm. and broader community. I know you have journalism as a background, so communication is something that you have a history in, but can you talk about how you communicate with your ecosystem now? So I think the first point here is always, as it is with any communications exercises, thinking about who I'm communicating to, whether that be the executive of Trade or the minister or the public more generally through journalists or through business kind of forums. So I'm always thinking about who I'm talking to and why they're there and what they want to hear, what they need to hear from someone in my role. So that's always my starting point. Once I've kind of worked that out and, and sort of therefore made some judgments on the level of understanding that they already have of the topic, then you kind of jump to the level of, okay, what can I tell this person or these people that they can walk away with and do something with? So it's kind of that call to action. What will actually mean something to them where they can either run their business a little bit more clearly because they have a bit of information they didn't have or in the case of obviously the minister, when the minister is trying to make decisions, what bit of information do I have that I need to get through that I think is important to the, the broad considerations that the minister may have. Or in the case of the executive who may be trying to make some decisions about where to put resources, what is it that they need to make their decisions? So once you've kind of sorted that out in your head, I think it's often quite clear what you need to then say <laughs> and on what data you need to go and pull out and what analysis on that data you need to do. Sometimes... That can be the same whether it's the minister or a journalist or a business forum. But most often it's not. And even if you're using the same data, you might cut it different ways to show different sides of a problem. Or, you know, you may be looking for some international comparisons which can make a point clearer. Or you may need some historical kind of points at which you can compare what's happening today to sort of define the size of a problem I often like to use little tricks which I learned in journalism, which is to make things real for people. So, for example, if we were talking about the size of a grant, say, to the tourism sector, to sort of put that in the context of that is equivalent to the pay of ex-teachers over a period of a year, for example, just to give it a little bit of meaning as to what that sum of money actually represents. Because a billion dollars doesn't really mean much to most people if it's not 
in their pocket or they're not used to dealing with it. Wouldn't it be nice to have a billion dollars in your pocket, by the way? I, I, can't, I couldn't <laughs> get my head around it. I mean, I understand what yeah. it means, but, yeah. but you don't. It's not real. You don't it, a billion it. dollars is not real. Well, if I said that the government spent a billion dollars on tourism support, to most people that's actually quite meaningless. But if you say that it's the equivalent to, you know, I don't know how many teachers that is, but, you know, 150 teachers over a period of X years, they, you know, they can maybe... It's more tangible. It's more mm, tangible. Yeah. Mm. It's not about providing data, it's about providing information. So and it's, context. It's, yeah, yeah. Translating data to information and then communicating. That's one thing I noticed when you just explained how you communicate data. It's almost like interviewing. You're asking the right questions. Rather than asking why, you actually asked what. What is it that you want to know? What do you want to do? It's different to why you want to do something. Why is so open, but what is so specific? It's so specific, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, give me the answer I actually need that actually will matter in my day-to-day decision-making or even just that one decision that I have to make. This sort of so what factor or the call to action or, you know, whatever it may be in the context, but relativities, contextualization, framing, all these little sort of techniques are really, really useful. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about you. I know Charmaine has a question to ask. I certainly do. So thinking about bringing yourself back to little Shirelle, what are the three kind of advice themes that you'd like to share with her? Isn't that a good question? I think number one is very clear, which is be yourself. Stop trying to be something else or someone that you think you should be. Make sure you use your own voice and your own thoughts and your own original ideas to the full because that's why you're there. You know, no one else has got that kind of unique history of education and events and emotional experiences and friendships and professional interactions that will get you to the point that you're at. So even as we're going through this interview, I think to myself, oh, just fluffing on here and I think no this is my opinion and you've asked me for my opinion so I'm going to give you my opinions and we totally appreciate it really really interesting thank you (laughs) Uh, there's a little anecdote that I often share which is when I worked in markets we would do a morning call as is quite common in markets usually kind of ridiculously early in the morning and everyone's already been at the desks for an hour an hour and a half and whoever was speaking on the morning call would put on this voice like the sound of a male 20-something market trader who's just wanted to sound cool and calm and together. And everyone used to put on the same voice. And there was no humour in it. There was no personality. It was just almost robotic. As in, I am like a Bloomberg machine. I'll just spit out the blah, 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 blah. This is the news overnight. And I just used to kind of think to myself, isn't this crazy how we're all trying to be the same person? That's not why we were hired. We were all hired for different reasons. And if my boss wanted me to be the same as the person who sits next to me, then that's just not realistic, you know, because I'm not the same as the person who I'm sitting next to. And my boss knows that. And that's why I'm here. So just have your own voice, have your own voice. And it took me a long time to get that, that I was there for a reason, which is because I'm Sherelle Murphy, not because I'm the trader that sits across the floor with the 20-something male voice. (laughs) That's not who I am. So that would be number one. Number two, I think, don't take yourself too seriously because that's just boring and can drive you into a sort of a wild frenzy of self-doubt if you think that you should be perfect 
all the time and serious all the time. You can't be productive all the time, every minute of the day. Productivity, by the way, I think has many different ways of being defined too. I think having a conversation with someone over lunch and discussing and sharing ideas can be as enhancing to your productivity as writing 300 words. So yeah, don't be too serious about being serious because <laughs> I don't think it really works very well. And ooh, number three, I guess just celebrate the moments that you've actually achieved something instead of kind of moving on really, really quickly. And in the world of journalism, it's ruthless. As the editor would always tell you, you're only as good as your last story. Just have a moment to sort of say, you know what? I did that and I did it well. And I'm going to be happy about that and celebrate it. And also when you don't do something well, have a moment to say, okay, I really stuffed that up. That's okay. It's not great. I'm not going to kind of crucify myself for it, but I will learn from it. I will not do that again because clearly it wasn't the path to go down. So just take a moment, reflect, think about the things you do well and the things you don't do so well, and then move on. But take that. Sounds good. It sounds like bring your flair to work, be honest with yourself and just celebrate the little wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on that last point, actually, I think that point of self-reflection is really important because I think different personality types will naturally be sort of self-flagellating or self-congratulatory all the time. And we all know that no one is good all the time and no one is bad all the time. So I think take that little lesson sitting here at this point in my career, I take that lesson. Be honest, as you say, Charmaine, with yourself because sometimes you will not do things well and it will take you a long time to work out that you haven't done it well. So when you get feedback, listen, really do listen and be sensitive to the, the little hints that might come your way about things you're doing well, things you're not doing well and really again just reflect on them because I think that sort of self-realization is really important you will not always get things right and you will not always get things wrong so yeah take those lessons and really move forward with them but it also sounds to me another thing is and persist <laughs> yeah yeah it's so true and I think if I have one excellent quality that I had to pick out it is I am damn determined <laughs> just keep on going you know just don't give up it's such a cliche isn't it but you can't you know you just can't give up there's nothing to be gained from sort of throwing your cards up there walking away and having a dummy spit it's just pointless so again have your moment shed a tear if you have to or just go and take a rest but get on with it again and just keep on going be determined that's really really good advice be determined very very good advice Thank you so much for that advice. I've got a question. And speaking to Charmaine and just casually, some of the people that have worked for you, the feedback they give is that you treat people at all levels with dignity and respect. And people feel very motivated by that in, mm -hmm. in their work. And personally, that motivates me. So I relate to that style of leadership. But it reminded me of one of the comments that Jacinta Ardern said when she said that because people somehow think that because she's empathetic, mm. they somehow think she's weak. Mm. And I'm just wondering if you're empathetic and you have mm. a great respect for individuals, mm. do people take advantage of that or see that as a sign of weakness, do you mm. think? Look, I think, yes, certain people do. It's interesting because I think even in my career, which is 
probably about 25 years old now. I've seen that change a lot too. So, and, and also different workplaces have different cultures which either respond well to empathetic leadership and others which simply don't. And I think I've worked in both. I think it just comes back to authenticity, doesn't it, in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm empathetic because that's who I am. It's just something that I grew up with. My family I kind of have those characteristics, I guess. And being an authentic person, whether I was a leader or not, to be honest, in the workplace, is that's just the way I communicate and the way I interact with people. If I tried to put on a guise of, I'm in charge, I know what to do and we're going to do it this way I'd probably look pretty ridiculous but you can certainly command a room I, I think I'd do it so and also actually that goes to the point of I think people are much more likely to come along for the ride if they actually know that I believe in what we're doing you know like I believe that we're on a journey together and we all want to get there for the same reasons I've had people come to me and make suggestions which I've actually thought were not particularly good ideas and I sort of said to them look you know here are the reasons I don't think that's a good idea I said but I'm not going to tell you what to do because you in yourself have a leadership position and it's up to you but you know here's my opinion on why I think that won't work but once you've got that information I want you to take it away and think about the problem and then come up with your own decision I'm not going to make the decision for you and again, I think that just comes back to the way that I interact with people. Because saying to someone, no, you're not going to do that, is just so foreign to me. It doesn't sound like the right thing to do. And I, funnily enough, I actually translate this in my parenting a little bit as well. I'm not particularly good at saying to the kids, no, do not do that, or just no. I sort of want to say, I don't think you should do that because... No, look, sometimes they have complete lend of me for, the, for that reason and... Then you have to put your foot down and say, no, sorry, that's not on. You are not having ice cream for breakfast. But again, it just comes back to that point, I guess. Treat people with dignity and the respect that they deserve because they're there for a reason. They've been picked for that job. They have skills in many areas that I don't. So let's find out what they think too. That makes sense. Mm, it does. And it's such a refreshing approach. And to me, it's absolutely the right way to treat people and, and mm. get the most out of and them. get the most out of them that's mm. and at the end of the day that's what it's about you know as a leader you try and get the best out of the smart people around you so if you kind of encourage them to think about problems in a different way that's i think so much more productive and actually has longevity whereas the just no don't do it like that okay that's going to work today but it's not going to work tomorrow gosh well, well thank you so much it's been fantastic to listen to you i know i'm speaking on behalf of charmaine it's been a blast absolutely i've, I've loved this conversation <laughs> yeah i've got so much out of it i've learned so much there's so many things i can apply to my day-to-day -day work so it's reassuring to be authentic and to bring your whole self to work so definitely it's, def it's refreshing isn't it it's nice to hear yeah thank you so much for your time oh complete pleasure anytime and i wish you all the best with the podcast i will be listening to all the episodes Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening and tuning in to the Women Count podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please subscribe to the show and provide a star rating. Watch out for new episodes on leadership and data science. And if you want to connect with the tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womeninbigdata.org.
Bye-bye for now.